Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapters 20 and 21. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. So back to the parable of the vineyard, back to the tenants in the vineyard, the leaders, the religious leaders, God sent another prophet. And they also, the religious leaders, beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. We hear about these prophets in Hebrews 11. We hear about some of the things they went through. They followed the judges, the prophets who in faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, received promises, stopped the mouths of lions, etc., etc., Some suffered mocking, scourging, chains, imprisonment. Some were stoned. Some were sawn in two. We know that's Isaiah. Then God sent a third prophet. And this one they wounded and cast out. I thought of John the Baptist there, the final prophet that was mortally wounded. He was beheaded. Priest, prophet, and king. Jesus would be the final priest, prophet, and king. The owner of the vineyard, God said, what shall I do? Oh, I have an idea. I'll send my beloved son, Jesus. They will respect him. Now, it wasn't just like... God had this idea from before he laid the foundation of the world. This was his logos, that he would send Jesus, his only son. He knew that from the beginning of time. But when the tenants, the religious leaders, saw Jesus, they said to themselves, this is the heir, this is Jesus, let us kill Jesus, that the inheritance will be ours. Now, that is so ironic. That's irony, because when they do kill Jesus, the inheritance will be theirs. He will pay the price for all people of all time, all of Abraham's children. The inheritance will be there. It's it's kind of the irony that John uses in John 11 when Caiaphas, who's not even supposed to be high priest that year, he was appointed by Rome, by the governor. But Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. That's irony, because if one man dies for the people, they will not perish eternally. He's saying it in the office of the high priest, even though his intention is different. He didn't say it on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. When the tenants, the religious leaders, see Jesus, they say, this is the heir, let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. They cast him out of the vineyard. We know Jesus was cast out. He was crucified outside the city wall of Jerusalem. They killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard, God, do to them, the religious leaders? He's going to come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well... In 70 AD, the temple was fully destroyed, the whole city of Jerusalem to the ground. And from the Greek word, Catholicos, according to the whole that comes from Catholic, universal for all, he destroyed the tenants and gave the vineyard to others, others who would believe, others that accepted him as Messiah. A lot of them were Jewish. When they heard this, they said, God forbid. But they looked at him and said, when then is this that is written, the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? Now that's curious. The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Let's talk a little bit about what a cornerstone is. You'll see them often inscribed with a dedication or a date, but it's that great big firm foundation that leads to the cohesion and the stability of the entire building. The most significant stone, the most important stone in the building is the cornerstone, especially back then before they had lasers and all these other things. It really set the foundation. 
In scripture, such foundation stones are taken as a symbolic basis of the faith in Jesus Christ and the church. He, Jesus, is the cornerstone, the foundation upon which the entire church is built. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, said the psalmist. Isaiah says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone attested, precious, cornerstone of a sure foundation. And Paul told the Ephesians, you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. In Acts, might be my favorite, Peter's impassioned speech in Acts 4 after a man's been healed. Be it known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the head of the corner. And there is no salvation. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. But then listen to this. How curious is this? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Wait a minute. We thought Jesus was good. We didn't think he's going to break us to pieces and crush us. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't understand this. This was a puzzle to my brain. I got to figure this out. I got to figure this out. I got to figure this out. What's Jesus saying? He's going to crush you? He's going to break you into pieces? Remember Daniel chapter 2. Remember Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Daniel was in exile. They called Daniel to him because he could figure out dreams. And, and Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even tell anyone the dream. Daniel had to first tell him what he dreamt, and then he had to tell him the meaning of the dream. Remember that? And it was a man, and it was the kingdoms of the world, and the order that they would come. And he said, the, the head is Babylon. And then the chest and the silver, they were Babylon, so that was good. But then the chest and the silver were the Medes and the Persians. That's the next world power that's going to take over. And then the bellies and the thighs are bronze. The next world power that's going to take over is Greece. And then the legs that were iron. That's Rome. The next world power would be Rome. And then the feet of iron and clay together is Rome in cahoots with the Jewish religious leaders at the time of Jesus. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Daniel says, as you saw the iron mixed with the miry clay so that they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those, the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall its sovereignty be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This stone is coming that's going to shatter all the other earthly kingdoms. It's going to be a forever kingdom. It's going to be made out of a stone, not hewn from human hands. Daniel says, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that a piece of it broke the iron, broke the bronze, broke the clay, broke the silver, broke the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Jesus is that rock that crushes all other worldly kingdoms into pieces and his kingdom is eternal. It will never end. Pagan Rome and Jewish leaders, religious leaders, they won't mix. They're like iron and clay, but they're in cahoots right now. They're trying to survive in this kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, hewn by no human hand. His kingdom is eternal. It will crush both. It will crush all kingdoms. It will have no end. It's a forever kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And that's what Gabriel, the angel, told Mary. Remember when he said, your son will be great. He's going to be called son of the most high. The Lord God is going to give him the throne of his father, David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. 
It helps us with the question tonight about David's son. He said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make thy enemies a stool for thy feet. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Jesus is the son of David. He comes from the loins, the lineage of David. But Jesus is also David's Lord because he pre-exists David. He spoke David into being. All things are created through him. King David is a thousand years, a millennial before Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning and no end. He always existed. He's the Father's Logos. The cornerstone of the temple did fall in 70 AD, and all who did not believe in Jesus, the true cornerstone, were dashed to pieces. Don't let the cornerstone fall on you in judgment. This is what Peter says. Come to him, to that living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight, chosen and precious. And like living stones, be yourselves built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. It's not easy to build something beautiful or eternal that's forever lasting. You know, you look at the pyramids and think of the, uh, in Egypt, they're still standing. You think of what it took to build them. But Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. And you have to ask, is he the cornerstone of my life? And what is that? The cornerstone is the first stone set in the foundation that all the other stones revolve around. Is Jesus the rock of my life? The rock of my faith, my firm foundation, is he the one that everything in my life revolves around? The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him. Oh, they're so mad. They tried to get him at that very hour, but they feared the people. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. And they were right. They perceived correctly. He did. So they watched Jesus and they sent spies. Did you catch that? They sent spies. They sent spies, espionage who pretended to be sincere, that they might take hold of what he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. We know that Pontius Pilate was the governor at that time, and so they want to deliver him up to the authority of Rome, to the jurisdiction of Pilate. Valerius Gratus was the governor before Pontius Pilate. He ruled from 15 to 26 AD. He gets replaced by Pontius Pilate. Gratus is chiefly remarkable. He made frequent changes in the high priest appointment. He's a Roman governor who was always changing who the high priest was. He did that frequently in history. They're in cahoots together. He'll elevate the one who he needs to do what he needs done for Rome and vice versa. According to Josephus, Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest appointed in 18 AD by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus, preceded Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate will be the fifth governor of Rome, of Judea. They changed the name from Judah to Judea, took it as a province. He serves under Emperor Tiberius. We heard about that in Luke chapter 3. Pilate will be the governor for the trial and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But the spies are asking Jesus, teacher, and they're really buttering up with flattery. Teacher, we know that you speak and you teach rightly and you show no partiality, but you truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? They want to know. They're trying to get him in a trap, in a snare. And Jesus perceived their craftiness, their cunningness. They were crafty, cunning, sly, deceitful. And he said to them, show me a coin. Whose likeness and whose inscription is on this coin? At that time, the image stamped in the coin would have been Caesar Tiberius. 
It's the image of Caesar. They say, Caesar. He says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. It's his image. Give it back. Who's stamped on you? Who is stamped on you? Whose impression are you made? Give to God the things that are God. They know from Genesis 1.26 that God had made them in his own image and likeness. They are stamped with God, not Caesar. Caesar's not their king. Even though they're going to say next chapter, Caesar's our king, he's not. God's their king and they know it. They're in his image and likeness. God made man in his own image. So give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God everything else. Everything else you're created in his image, give him your whole life, all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, the Shema prayer. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him by what he said, but marveling at his answer, again, they plead the fifth. They're silent. Now, there's a question about resurrection, and it's from the Sadducees, and they are sad, you see, (laughs) because they do not believe in an afterlife, they do not believe in a resurrection, and they're very sad. So they're going to ask him a question about resurrection. They don't believe in it, but that's what they want to present to him. So they say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the wife and raise the children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first one took a wife. She died without children, then the second, then the third. Likewise, all seven, no children, and they all died. And afterward, the woman died. Now, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For she had seven husbands. Now, the Sadducees don't even believe in resurrection. And they're asking Jesus about resurrection. And they're trying to make resurrection of the dead sound absurd and ridiculous. They really are. But there's a couple stories in the Old Testament where there are seven sons. And the book of Tobit is one where there are seven dead husbands. And it reminded me of the book of Tobit. And the Protestant reformers removed Tobit from their Bible. But there are several Aramaic and Hebrew transcripts of Tobit that were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they gave a big boost of understanding about this book. Sarah is the daughter of Tobit's closest relative. She has seven successive husbands that are each killed by a demon on their wedding night. Husband killed after husband after husband after husband after husband, seven in a row. And when Tobit and Sarah pray to God for deliverance, God sends the angel Raphael to act as an intercessor. Maccabees is the next story with seven sons. This was also removed from the Protestant canon, but it's important because it's right before Jesus. The Greeks have Zeus in the temple of the Lord. And there are seven holy Maccabees brothers that all are martyred. The seven brothers and their mother, Salamenia, display great courage. They were brought in trial before Antioch, the king. They fearlessly acknowledged themselves as the true followers of the true God. They refused to eat the pig that, that they were being made to eat. They said it's forbidden by our law. Their mother encouraged one after another to die nobly, saying that the Lord God's watching over us in truth and compassion. He will have compassion on his servants. The elder brother was a spokesman for the rest. He said that he would prefer to die than break the law, the Torah. So he was tortured in front of all the brothers and their mother. His tongue was cut out. He was scalped. His hands and feet were cut off. Then they made a cauldron of hot oil. A large frying pan was heated, and the brother was thrown into the frying pan in front of all of them. Then the next five brothers, one after another. You should read this. You should read the account. They were tortured one after another after another. The seventh and youngest brother was the last one left alive, and the king himself suggested to the mother to persuade the boy, her last son, to be spared. And she spoke to him in Hebrew, but instead the brave mother told the boy to imitate the courage of his brothers. Why would she do that? Because she believed in the power of the resurrection, even though she didn't know anything about it yet. The child upbraided the king was tortured even more cruelly than the rest of the brothers had been. 
And after all her seven sons had died, Saint Salomonia stood over their bodies. She raised up her hands in praise to God, and she died. And those martyred brothers bore great witness, and they inspired Judas Maccabeus to lead a revolt against King Antiochus Epiphanes. And with God's help, they gained victory. They destroyed the pagan altars. They purified the temple at Jerusalem. And the Feast of Hanukkah follows. It's a very important piece of history. So many church fathers preached about this, St. Cyprian and and St. Ambrose, St. Gregory, St. John Chrysostom, because the mother had such great faith in the power of the resurrection, like Abraham did with Isaac, such obedience of faith that they would trust God and think that there had to be a life beyond this. And she's listed in Hebrews chapter 11, women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. I think that's her. So they want to know about resurrection to Jesus. They know these scriptures. Jesus said, it doesn't matter, guys. It doesn't matter. The sons of this age marry. They're given in marriage. But those who are accounted worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore. They're eternally alive because they're equal to the angels. Not that they're going to turn into a spirit. You don't turn into an angel. You're a creature. But you're going to be eternally alive like an angel. They're sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls to the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but God of the living, because all live to him. And some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Now they're silent. He says, I'm the God of your father Abraham, Isaac. Jacob, they're living, they're eternally alive. Moses hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. Catholics don't pray to the dead. We pray to those who have gone on before us who are now eternally alive, more alive, more fully alive than ever, just like that scripture shows. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes who go about in long robes. They love salutations in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogue, the best places and honored at the feast. They devour widows' houses for a pretense. They make long prayers and they will receive a greater condemnation. And there's no chapter divisions here. So it goes right into a story about a widow. The scribes who Jesus had just said devour widows' houses. Jesus is moving into a story about a very poor widow. He looks up. He's preaching in the temple precincts. He looks up, and there's boxes to put your offerings in. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And then he saw a poor widow putting in two copper coins. Two copper coins. They're mites. It's like putting in your last two cents, but it's even less than that. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all, the scribes, contributed out of their abundance. But she, the widow, out of her poverty, has put in all the living that she had. Out of her poverty, she has put in everything, all the living that she had. The scribes, out of abundance, this widow, out of her great poverty, has given everything to the Lord. So it's um, something that we can learn to do is pray out of our poverty. I'm working on praying out of my poverty instead of out of my surplus or my abundance. Like coming to the Lord with my poverty, with my weaknesses, with my faults, with my failings, with my fears, with my wants, just with, with my poverty instead of my surplus, my checklist of what I need, what I'd like. So this widow comes with everything, gives everything to the Lord. 
in the Bible times, it is extremely difficult for widows, especially if they do not have a son. They're really destitute. Bible widows were poor. If they didn't have a son, it's almost nearly impossible to survive. Luke has given us so many widows this year. And I think because he interviewed Mary for those infancy narratives, and Mary was a widow, and her son was gone, her husband's gone, and he was the first one to paint Mary, remember? And Mary would be a widow without a son the moment Jesus dies. And remember, Luke gave us the widow of Nain, and it was her only son, and he died. And Luke's the only one. It's two miles from Nazareth. They might have, she might have known his mother, Mary. But he's also thinking of how his mother, he has compassion. He's moved to resurrect this woman's son, the widow of Nain. He resurrects her only son from death. And he also told us in Luke 4 about that widow from Zarephath. That she gave all she had, her last oil, her last flower. And she gave it all to the Lord. And there again, he resurrected. Elijah comes back and resurrects her only son from death. So in her poverty, she gives her all, her last two cents, everything. And Jesus is witnessing this. And he's just very moved. And he publicly at that moment denounces the scribes. In front of everyone. Why? Because in Deuteronomy 26, it was law. It was Mosaic law that you should give tithe to the Levite, the priest, because they didn't have land, to the sojourner, to the fatherless, and to the widow. And it's repeated again. The Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. She gives her all. She's obeying and trusting God. And they, these big fat cat authorities, promised they were supposed to redistribute the temple collections to the needy, but they're eating up the temple funds with their long robes, their phylacteries. They spend the temple funds on banquets, extravagant consumption instead of the widows. And so that scene had to just make them furious. He points it out publicly in front of everybody. And they will receive greater condemnation, Jesus says. So he loved the faith-filled widows. Okay, last thing, the destruction of the temple is foretold. The temple is adorned with stones and offerings. As for these things which you see, said Jesus, the day's going to come when there shall be none left. One stone upon another stone will be thrown down. And when you go there today, those stones are sitting there and they cry out. They bear witness to the destruction of the temple that he foretold. He said, don't be terrified. This must first take place, but the end is not going to be at once. So first he's going to tell us about the destruction of the temple. Then he's going to tell us about the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming. So he foretells the destruction of the temple, one thing after another, after another, after another, and they all come true. One important point he makes in Luke, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is the best tip ever. This is the best tip ever. Let those who are inside the city depart and let those who are out in the country not enter Jerusalem. Don't come back. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that has been written. Alas, for those who were with child, for those who give suck in those days, the nursing mothers, the great distress that will be upon the earth, the wrath that's going to fall on them. They're going to fall by the edge of the sword. They're going to be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem's going to be trodden down by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Half of that's true. Jerusalem has been trodden down by the Gentiles, but the times of the Gentiles have not been fully fulfilled yet. It was in 69, early 70, that Roman Emperor Vespasian dispatches General Titus to Judea. We have a firsthand account by Josephus of this Roman assault on the temple. Josephus is a former leader of the Jewish revolt who had surrendered to the Romans and won favor from Emperor Vespasian. And in gratitude, Josephus takes Vespasian's family name of Flavius as his own. And this is from his direct account. Okay, so you can see how this was fulfilled, what Jesus 
told us was going to happen, happened. And Josephus proves it. Here's what he says. Some pieces of it. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed. They were butchered. Where they were caught, the heaps of corpses mounted higher and higher above the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. Jesus said, where the corpses are, there the vultures will gather together. While the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it, and countless peoples who were caught up were slaughtered. There was no pity for age, no regard for accorded rank. Children, old men, laymen, priests alike were butchered. Every class was pursued and crushed in the grip of war, whether they cried out for mercy or offered no resistance. Through the roar of the flames streaming far and wide, the groans of the falling victims were heard. Such was the height of the hill and the magnitude of the blazing pile that the entire city seemed to be ablaze. And the noise, nothing more deafening and frightening could be imagined. Remember it said some will die from fright tonight? The cries on the hill blended with those of the multitudes in the city below. And now many people who were exhausted and tongue-tied as a result of hunger, when they beheld the temple on fire, found strength once more to lament and to wail. Perea and the surrounding hills added their echoes to the deafening din. Perea and the surrounding hills, those are the mountains that Jesus told them to flee to. Let those who are inside the city depart. Perea, it's on the other side of the Jordan River. From their vantage point, they could have seen the blaze, the fire, the smoke, heard the screaming, the crying over the mountains. But more horrifying than the den were the sufferings. The Temple Mount everywhere, enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames and the numbers of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers jumped over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. Where the corpses are, there the eagles will be gathered, the symbol of Rome, the eagle on top of their standard. There are the corpses. That's the destruction of the temple. It matches up with Josephus. The last thing he says, he's coming back again. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. There will be a second coming. We say it at Mass every week, right? We're looking forward to the resurrection of the body, right? And the life of the world to come. We're looking forward to it, right? Right? Yeah. There will be signs. It's going to be a cosmic event. The sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the distress of the nations and perplexity of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Nobody's going to miss it. Men will be fainting with fear, with foreboding at what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And there they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, go run and hide under your pool table. No, no. When these things take place, look up. And raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You have nothing to fear. Stay in covenant with Jesus. Look up. Run to Jesus. He's coming again in judgment to save us, to save us, and to take us home one day. And even if we're not living when the second coming comes, we're all going to face the second coming, right? We're all going to stand before him face to face one day. No one knows the day or hour. So we live ready. And we thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your word tonight. Please help us be ready. Please help us live ready. Please help us live like that widow, giving our all, giving out of our poverty, not our abundance. You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, chapters 20 and 21, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.